So it's been a year, as I said earlier. Um, you guys, we say it's been quite a year, but it's also been a year since we've been on Zoom um, doing the services here for 52 weeks. I was looking back in my emails uh, as I was preparing for this sermon. And uh, I, about a year ago, um, I, uh, I saw an email from my workplace announcing that they were going to close on March 14th through, oh, my little naive colleagues, the end of the month. On March 13th, 2020, a year ago yesterday, the elders sent out an email saying that we would be meeting, we would not be meeting in the building on March 15th and would instead meet on Zoom for a little while. Over the last year, several of us have lost loved ones, some have lost jobs, and many of us have suffered from mental and physical illness. And still it goes on. There are times when we praise God easily, when we say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then there are times when Psalm 77 matches our reality. I cried out to God for help, it says. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out on tiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about my former days, the years of long ago. I thought of my song, I remembered my songs in the night and my heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And we're here, still on Zoom, and over half a million Americans have died of the pandemic. And more than the statistically usual number of our friends, family, and neighbors have died from other causes over the last year. In the past, Americans looked to the church for comfort, and in all this bad news, we said we had good news. What is the gospel, the good news that we can tell people? Paul, writing to his apprentice Timothy, says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. But I, I admit it's confusing why Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, is good news. Why was it good news for Paul? And why is it good news for us as we enter the second year of the pandemic? Today's not a sermon or a talk for easy answers. Theologians sometimes talk about the problem of pain and it really is a problem if we believe the basic tenets of our faith. We say that God is good and loving. We say that God is powerful, is all powerful and all knowing. And we know that pain and suffering exist. Skeptics will understandably argue that only two of those things can be true at the same time. If God is all powerful and loving, why does he allow pain? Whatever utility or uh, whatever utility pain might have as a tool for discipline or a means of drawing us closer to God or teaching us something, couldn't he who created the universe have created it in such a way that pain wasn't the way to make that happen? And I don't have an answer for this. And I confess that those attempts at answers that I've read feel insultingly superficial. 
And yet, in spite of myself, I, I do believe these three points of the problem of pain to be true. I know pain exists. I believe that God is all powerful and I believe God is good. And part of the active work of my faith is that these uh, three contradictory assertions must somehow be held in tension and accepted, even though logically I know that they can't, they are all, they contradict themselves. Of course, um, this sort of heady speculation about theodicy uh, is not something that a lot of us have uh, time to focus on most of the time. But most of us do try to find a reason for suffering when we encounter it or when we, when we, those we love suffer. By, by identifying a reason for pain, it makes the world seem more orderly, more understandable. Was the heart attack caused by a poor diet? Did cancer come because of exposure to polluted water? Did the pandemic come to teach us a spiritual lesson? When 18 men died, when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, were they more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? The last question was from Jesus himself, and he answers it, I tell you no. The impossibility of explaining suffering is a common theme in the Bible and one that God's people have to learn again and again. Probably the most um, uh, familiar or famous uh, exposition or ex exploration of this question is in the book of Job. Job asks that question again and again and demands that God answers him. And God responds, have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. The more I learn, the more I realize that the contradictions inherent in the problem of pain are perhaps not even the most mysterious or obvious of the paradoxes of creation. I know we have in our congregation and on this call actually, several who are working in quantum computing, which is a field that I can't even begin to articulate, but in my limited understanding, it seems to be based on exploiting the seeming reluctance of the universe to be fully known. Um, objects when observed change somehow, or at least their behavior is affected somehow. Talk to Eve or Naveen for the real story. Um, but going back in the history of science, um, Einstein's famous time dilation equations are another sort of paradox along this lines, which suggest the speed of light itself moves more slowly. Uh, so, sorry, as, a, as an object appro approaches the speed of light itself, it, uh, time moves more slowly than it does for an object at rest. Those in the International Space Station age a few milliseconds slower each year than we do here on Earth. A satellite orbiting the Earth at the speed of light would theoretically find were it to stop that infinite time had passed on earth. We are told that in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And all the light that's ever been has emanated from that primal source. What this means for God and time, I can't begin to guess. Theologians have often said that God exists outside of time, but in the Bible, he occasionally pokes his head into it when he speaks through a burning bush or the top of a mountain. The name he gave to Moses was I am which carries with it a certain restfulness in relationship to time. The angel, angels from their relative position may experience the Lord God Almighty as one who was and is and is to come, but God is and is and is, I am, always present. Jesus tells his audience in John before Abraham was, I am, suggesting somehow that he was present 
uh, with Abraham and the Pharisees across thousands of years at the same time. For us, time may move linearly like a train and our grammar with its tenses makes sense when we talk of what was and is and will be. But for God, I have an idea that time may be more like a painting in which the painter has at various points imprinted his fingerprints. His interventions in the painting are not before or after uh, another subject in the painting, but always present. When John says in the book of Revelation that the Lamb of God, Jesus, was slain since the foundation of the world, he seems to be saying that the crucifixion that happened around 2,000 years ago in our timeline was part of that picture since the moment that same Lamb was the Word saying, let there be light. The Lamb was and is and will be slain since the foundation of the world. And if the spreadsheet of human experience is sorted by the column labeled time, maybe for God and those outside of time, there are other ways of sorting. Maybe God can sort by kinds of human experiences so that events that seem very distant when ordered chronologically may be very near when sorted in another way. I get a sense of this when reading the Old Testament. There's backward echoes of Jesus throughout it, um, for instance, uh, we read in Exodus, now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. And then in the gospels, after Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for all those who wanted to take the child's life are dead. Or in Paul, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man may be lifted up. Sorry, that's Jesus actually. Um, the rock in the desert that Moses struck without authorization poured out water, uh, as did the wound from Jesus' side made by the centurion spear. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, in what might somehow be more than a metaphor, that that rock in the desert that poured out water was Christ. There are pictures that repeat through scripture like fractals, and God who created the universe seems to enjoy rhythm and rhyme, repetition with change. And if you sort human history, by these moments, I think he might find Jesus is present in each of them. But I know this is getting abstract and I, I don't know why suffering exists. I don't know why the young and the innocent have to die. I don't know why the old and the wicked have to die. And if I don't have answers, good answers for those mysteries, I certainly can't tell you with absolute confidence uh, that I know all of the reasons that Jesus had to die. The Bible does give us some parts of the answer though. We've seen over the last few weeks that Jesus had to drink the, God's, the cup of God's wrath so that we didn't have to. That by dying, he gave us a perfect example of self-sacrifice. These are what theologians call theories of atonement. When the early Christians saw that Jesus had risen from the dead and remembered all he said about dying and rising again for his people, they realized that something really important had happened between the time that Jesus was nailed to the cross and the morning that he arose again. Somehow what had happened there meant that suffering and its ultimate climax death was no longer final. They understood that Jesus's death was because of our sins or for our sins, but how the death of one man dealt with the problem of our sin is a question that theologians have argued about and discussed since the beginning of the church. And today I've been asked to talk about the theory of atonement that proposes that Jesus' suffering and death meant that he could be present in and provide a way through our own suffering and death. It's important to know that none of these theories replace the other ones. Um, 
I'm not saying that the reasons that the previous dis uh, speakers discussed are wrong or inferior in any way. Each one is a note in the harmony of God's marvelous composition. And if any note is removed, the sound suffers. But remember when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Later in Genesis, God says, the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Death then entered the world as a kind of mercy, a way of providing a limit and asymptote to evil. When in the garden we chose evil, humankind entered a trajectory that led to a very bad place. An object in motion tends to stay in motion unless external forces act on it. Have you ever known a person who, as they grew older, did not improve with age, but only became more unpleasant and more sinful than they were before? We learn as children that maturity means getting stronger and wiser and better. And then as adults, we realize that there are some parts of our body and soul that do not improve without work. And in fact, age accelerates their degeneration. So God in his mercy cut us off from eternal life, which would have been something like hell if left unchecked. He said, this cancer cannot enter my kingdom. It must be cut off from the tree of life. Uh, it must be cut off from the tree of more and more life. But that was Adam. What do Adam's bad choices mean that we're doomed to make the same? Do we always make the, bad, the same bad choices of our parents or our parents' parents? I'm afraid the answer is usually, we follow the models that we've been given or else we react consciously against them, which pushes us into a different kind of sin. But even if our mistakes are completely unlike our parents, we're still descended from bodies that took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And something happened there that made us tend towards evil. We each of us have to admit that there are parts within us that if allowed to grow infinitely would make us hell to be around. So God said, cut it off, burn it off. Let that which is cancerous die in the chemical fire of the chemotherapeutic reg regime regimen. And that was phase one of the treatment. But then what parts of humanity are left can you honestly say that there's any part of you that is free from the inclination to do wrong and given infinite time, infinite wrong? Isaiah says your whole head is injured and your whole heart faint. We have the genetic code of the fall copied into our body and our soul and our spirit. And Paul asks, who will rescue us from this body of death? His answer is, thanks be to God who delivers me from Jesus Christ, who delivers us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Phase one of the remedy for sin was the merciful introduction of death. And in phase two, we're offered a different path. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, for since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. When the infinite God joined our gene pool, things changed. When he died, death itself became an experience inhabited somehow by the immortal God. Remember, immortal means undying, so somehow death is inhabited by the undying. When Jesus raised up Jairus' daughter, or Lazarus, from the dead, 
he talked about waking them up. They were returned to their loved ones, but there was no real impact on those that didn't know Lazarus or didn't know Jairus's daughter. But when Jesus died and rose again, it wasn't just that one person had fallen asleep and then been returned to their loved ones, but the road that we were all on that led to the grave had suddenly somehow been diverted. Now, of course, death still happens. People still fall asleep in that sense. And the early Christians knew this pretty quickly. Stephen was stoned and Luke says that he falls, fell asleep. And Paul tells Tabitha to wake up from her sleep when he rises, raises her from the dead in Acts 9. In these cases in which the spirit miraculously returns to the body, the body seems more or less unchanged. Lazarus is still recognizable. But when Jesus rose, spirit returned to his body, but his body was somehow different. His friends and his disciples didn't even recognize him at first. Mary thought he was a gardener. The two on the road to Emmaus didn't figure out who he was until he gave thanks for a meal. And even when Peter and the disciples met Jesus for breakfast on the edge of a lake, John's description suggests both familiarity and strangeness. None of the disciples dared to ask who he was, Luke writes, sorry, John writes, but they knew he was the Lord. He was different somehow, but he was also recognizable. Jesus didn't return to life from death in the same way as Lazarus. He didn't hit death and bounce back. He passed through death into something new. Were you ever told that hell is the absence of God? We say that God is everywhere and at all times and in all places, but often in evangelical circles, we don't mean in hell. But David tells us as translated by the King James scholars, if I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there as well. Now, of course, hell wasn't a word that they early that David would have had. Most modern translations more accurately translate the word Sheol as the underworld. But although the Jewish people had a growing understanding of what that place was, the sense there still seems to be that the dead are outside of the presence of the living and outside of the presence of the living God. Can the dust, can the dust praise you, that sort of thing. But David knew that God was there. God decided that he would make a way, he would find a way to make himself part of the discipline, part of his wrath, part of his shame, part of the rebuke, part of the abandonment that we call suffering. And so by his presence would somehow redeem the places of wrath and absence. And that's what we see in today's passage uh, that um, we heard earlier. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. At the start of today's passage, we encounter the first suffering we feel often when we draw near to Jesus someone else is carrying our cross. This is not always a relief, but a burden. Jesus bears the weight of the crossbeam that we should be carrying. Doesn't God understand that guilt, uh, the, that guilt of that, the guilt of that itself is a kind of suffering? I think he does, and by God's providence, God provided Simon to carry Jesus's cross when he was too weak to do so. So sort the spreadsheet by suffering, and Jesus is next to us, suffering the same guilt and suffering. Jesus could have muted his suffering a bit. He knew, though, that he had to be present in every part of the picture of human pain. They came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. 
And this refusal to care for his own needs is in fact another part of human suffering. Sometimes we make a sacrificial choice that we know is the right choice and we feel good about it afterwards. But sometimes after making that choice, we are plagued by the memory as we suffer the, the consequences of self-sacrifice. We remember we had a better option and we refused it. We remember the onions and leeks that we ate in Egypt. And that refusal, that, that choice to, to follow God and refuse ourselves sticks with us. It tickles our memory as the suffering gets worse and makes us hate our own choices. Jesus knows he is there, not was there, mind you, he is there. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes and cast lots. After the results of Jesus's choice to drink the, the cup of God's wrath were fully in place, Jesus watches from a place of pain and suffering as those few material pieces of his old life are gambled away by those killing him. Have you ever left a job or sold a house and then look back later to see the new owners or the new person gambling away the material things that you worked so hard to build? Jesus did, burning in the sun and shaking naked in the chill after the darkness covered the land. Jesus watched as his few possessions, his material legacy were assigned value and gambled for while he suffered. When you feel that kind of suffering, Jesus is there feeling it too. And finally, they sat down. They called him king of the Jews, which was both entirely true and not true in the sense they meant it. It turned Jesus's people against him. It turned the Romans against him. The mockery of the title made it clear that Jesus's true identity was not accepted by anyone. It mocked Jesus's people, the Jews, by playing on the continuing tension in Israel. Unlike the other uh, people that had been conquered by the Romans, the Jewish people were actually allowed to have their own king, Herod, and their own religion, even if they were ultimately expected to be subservient to Rome. Putting this label on Jesus's cross might have been something like the Chinese authorities labeling a political uh, activist, chief executive of Hong Kong. It both mocked the Jesus movement and the government of Israel. It bothered the Jewish leaders so much that they wanted the title changed to, he called himself king of the Jews, but Pilate refused. And Jesus suffered knowing his death was bringing shame to his uh, message, his friends, and his very nation. And Jesus is there with you when you feel even a touch of the same kind of guilt. And then at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt that God had abandoned him. God knew in some way what it feels to experience the dark night of the soul, what it feels for God to depart from God. The judgment that means God has withdrawn his spirit and moved on was experienced by God on the cross. And God who was in all places that ever was and will be for all time was and will be and is at the place where God abandoned God. When you feel that God has abandoned you, God is there feeling that abandonment with you. And I'm fully aware that by itself, that is only of some comfort. The pain of the thieves crucified next to Jesus was probably not significantly lessened because Jesus was there too. The guy on the left certainly didn't seem to think so. However, because Jesus is, as we've said, outside of time, 
I think it's possible that Jesus is not only familiar with the same kind of pain that we experience, but that somehow he is present with us feeling our pain. And because God is present there in our pain, the ultimate outcome for us can be the same as the outcome for Jesus. In fact, I think that the anticipation of something worse is at the heart of a lot of our suffering. We hate hunger and illness and physical pain because somehow we know that each step is another step along the path towards death. And as we travel along that path of pain, the fear gets worse and worse. Around a year ago, as many of you know, I was going through a particularly difficult time. And what was most depressive about the pain of that time was the fear and uncertainty about where things seemed to be headed. Granted, the expect my uh, worst expectation of uh, the future at that time and death was pretty wide, but I felt an existential change to my sense of a challenge to my sense of self, my identity and my way of life. I was encouraged to read the Psalms when I would wake up in the middle of the night. And when it worked, the comfort came not so much from remembering that God was there, but remembering that for what, that whatever would happen, God was in the future, is in the future too. There may be wilderness ahead, but the destination is ultimately the promised land. And when we enter into that point where we participate in this part of the spreadsheet that is labeled death, there is someone a step ahead of us, beating a path through the valley of death. Tolstoy wrote a short story, The Death of Ivan Illich, which I've quoted before in a communion meditation. Um, but I think it's uh, useful to look at again just now. Um, in, the, in the story, Ivan Illich is dying and after visiting with his friends and family, the time has finally come. And the pain, he asks himself, what, what's become of it? Where are you, pain? He became attentive. Yes, there it is. Well then let there be pain and death. Where is it? He sought his old habitual fear of death and could not find it. Where was it? What death? There was no more fear because there was no more death. Instead, death, instead of death, there was light. So that's it, he said aloud. What joy! For him, all this happened in an instant, and the significance of that instant never changed. For those present, his agony went on for two more hours. Something gurgled in his chest, his emaciated body kept twitching, and then the gurgling and the wheezing gradually subsided. It's finished someone said over him. He heard those words and repeated them in his soul. Death is finished, he said to himself. It is no more. He drew in air, stopped mid-breath, stretched out, and died. My great-grandmother once told my grandma and my mom, if God says he'll be with us in the shadow of the valley of death, that's enough for her, and we'll all be there soon enough. But there might be suffering beforehand. But we can take comfort in the fact that whatever, whichever of the many forking paths of suffering and shame we might be traveling, Jesus is there too. And he has redirected that path so it leads to the ultimate happiness of his presence. The Psalm I quoted, Psalm 77 at the beginning, ends in this way. To this I will appeal. The years when the Most High, when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. 
The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water and the heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The famous wall hanging says that when there was only one foot of set of footprints, that's when Jesus carries us. Fine. But the Bible reminds us that when we see none, we might be missing the fact that the sea itself has parted to make way and that a whirlwind of God's presence is spinning in front of us. We are walking on the ground of a miracle. But when it feels like we are walking alone between the waters of the Red Sea and his footprints cannot be seen, when we cry out with panic with another psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are singing the psalm along with Jesus on the cross. He is leading us. He is and was and is to come and is and is and is I am. All right, so we're going to um, sing another song. This is actually a um, an modernization of an old song. And it was written, actually, I was looking at some of the history of it today. The person that wrote it was uh, kind of stressing out about buying a house. And uh, she um, started singing the hymn, It Is Well. And she looked back. She didn't know the story that I think many of us know, the, how this song was written by Horatio Spafford when his family, his kids were killed in a, a shipping accident um, back in the... 19th century, and uh, she said she heard God saying to her, um, the waters still know my name, and she kind of saw the difference, or that that God was present in the life of Horatia Stafford, and that he can certainly be with her as she's going through the process of buying a house. So let's sing that song together now. <laughs> 